0: And welcome to this episode of Cloud Control presented by Spot by NetApp. I'm your host, Sean Harris, Developer Relations Lead at Spot by NetApp. Today, we are joined by James Sanders, a seasoned expert in cloud and infrastructure technology. He currently serves as the principal analyst for CCS Insight, a boutique UK based analyst firm. He brings extensive knowledge from his previous role at 451 Research, which is part of the SP Global Market Intelligence Organization. In addition to his impressive analytical background, he possesses a unique approach to understanding and discussing the cloud space, blending his technical insights with the financial implications of adopting new technologies. James, thanks for joining us on Cloud Control today. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Hey, no problem. Hey, so you're an analyst that specializes in the cloud, which is what all which is what this podcast is about, and I gave you a brief intro. Why don't you walk us through kind of your journey and how you ended up becoming an analyst in the cloud, in the cloud space? So the, the funny thing about the analyst land is that no one actually,
1: like there's no degree program to become an industry analyst. No one ever sets out to do this. This is something that more or less happens to you. So my, I mean, if you want to go from like the, the very beginning of things, I, so I grew up in Kansas and my first experience with computers was, you know, I thought it was really interesting that you could use computers to track storms. And of course, you know, what else do you have in Kansas? You have tornadoes, that's about it. And so the idea that you could use computers to track storms in real time, to, you know, help people get to safety if they are in danger of a tornado, I thought that was really cool. And that's that's what kind of led me on this weird trajectory of like really getting getting into computers. And so the funny thing is, is that, you know, growing up um, as a little Munchkin—again, Wizard of Oz joke—I, um, I wanted to be a meteorologist, and now I'm a cloud analyst, which is almost the same thing to someone who's no
0: to who someone who knows nothing about either. That's how I should explain my job to my parents who don't understand what I do. I'm I'm a meteorologist in the sense. It's it's kind of an amazing thing, but you... um,
1: the the interesting thing about being an an industry analyst is. I'm kind of actually paid to think about the implications of technology on society. And business is part of society. Like, a lot of what this is is going to be, you know, you have a product. Is there a market fit? And it's the it's sort of advice thing. It's, it, it's a lot of hats, right? Like, it's, it's also consulting. It's, you know, we talk to all of your competitors. We know all your competitors. So, you know, here's, here's the landscape. Here's what you're playing against. And it becomes a very different job day-to-day day because you have to be responsive to what, to what your, your clients need. But at the end of the day, it's still, what is the implication of technology on society? Because that, that's kind of at the core of everything, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, At the end
0: of the day, it's people using technology to achieve some sort of goal. Well, let's break that down a little bit because you bring up a good point about the cultural and societal implications of tech. Um, in a post pandemic world, we've seen a lot of companies go that moved to the cloud very rapidly. Right. And I've brought this up on episodes of the podcast before, but we were all working away one day in March of 2020. And I remember it specifically because I was watching a basketball game and they stopped the basketball game. It was between the Oklahoma city thunder and the Utah jazz. And it was because a bunch of players had suddenly tested positive for COVID and two days later. And being told by my management, yep, we're all working from home. Go to the office, grab your stuff, socially <laughs> distance, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. And a couple weeks turned into two years. So let's talk about how fast everybody moved to the cloud and what you see from an, inle- an, an, anal- an analyst's point of view to how people are trying to maintain, not only maintain that cost, but at the same time, looking at repatriating their data from the cloud back to on-prem. And is that really going to work? Okay, that is a huge question. So let's let's unpack that. Um, there were
1: a lot of companies that went into the cloud in in COVID, like already with the experience of okay, we've got we've got a few workloads here, and this is fine. We've got some on-prem stuff, and that's fine. And then the the types and amount of compute that you really needed changed a lot when everyone started working from home. Unsurprisingly, there's a gigantic demand for virtual desktops because everybody's working from home. And if no one can go to a factory to produce new systems, how are you going to deal with, you know, information security? How are you going to deal with, you know, maybe not everyone was issued a laptop when they came in. And so you wind up in these odd situations where you kind of have to make do with what you have and you have to expand really quickly. And those are two completely opposing forces. And so it becomes this this really careful balance of, okay, we've got to do all that. We've got to do it securely. And we have to do it quickly because, mm-hmm. you know, time is money. And it was chaos. Like, I I mean, everyone who's going to listen to this remembers, right? It was chaos to try to figure out, okay, well, what do we do now? Um, it It's kind of, you know, navigating in the dark a lot of ways. And yeah, I mean, it it's sorted out for a lot of companies. A lot of companies wound up doing this, huge expansion to to cloud platforms and trying to square the circle of okay we need all this now but also we have to be very cost efficient in the way that we do it. And that was a challenge. So for some for some companies it was, you know, just just do it now. We will worry about cost later. And that later that later's coming around, right? Like it's kind of amazing how start and stop the economy has been with COVID. Like there was an initial shock of, okay, we just need revenue because things in the supply chain can't sit in this place for too long. Like if you remember all the, the weird restaurant deals that happened with COVID, um, <laughs> there were just things that needed to be moved. And so you had, you had restaurants just selling groceries because that demand was not going to be there. They, they didn't want to let it spoil. And that in a certain way is kind of what enterprise IT was like at the time. It's, you know, we've got to do all this stuff. We can't let it spoil. And so, I mean, there's a lot of uh, situations where I think plans were embarked on not with forethought necessarily, but just because it needed to happen. And the shortest path to making it happen became, okay, this is the way we're going to do this. And now the implications of all of that are are kind of coming home to roost. And I I mean, as, as we're recording this, We've gotten through uh, another cycle where I, I think this is first in quite a while where interest rates aren't rising. so maybe maybe the pressure valve is is a little looser than it was a week ago. But there's a situation of, okay, we have to clamp down on spending. We've, you know, maybe you're in an organization that's had a lot of layoffs. Maybe you're in an organization that didn't hire a whole lot during the pandemic, but everyone is taking a a sort of hairy eyeball um to their cloud spending and Hard decisions have to be made, and is that going to be okay? We'll we'll take all of our logging and do some sort of filtering, so when we send it off to whatever observability platform we're using, um, we can you know take a, a haircut on on that just by sending in less data. Maybe the the granularity is not as high. We can we can get away with that. Save a little money that way. Maybe it's okay. Maybe. You know, these things don't need to be processed. We can we can delay this for a while. Maybe it's, you know, a change in backup strategy, this sort of thing. Maybe it's just cutting workloads entirely. Maybe it's selling off a business unit. But the the difficult thing is asking actual engineering questions about, okay, well, what do we do with this? And that is where things like, you know, reserve distances and savings plans come into place. And you can get you can get decently far by just booking the amount of compute that you need in advance, which is a little bit contrary to the idea of, you know, cloud is scale up and scale down as you need. But we've seen it from really all of the cloud vendors, all of the hyperscalers certainly, that they're working with customers on reducing their cloud bill. Because the idea is, you know, if, if you, um in a down market, actually work with people in in right-size things or, you know, help them find some savings, they'll stay on the platform rather than re-platform, rather than migrate off to something on-prem. And the thing is, is that, you know, companies have learned the lessons of cloud. They've learned the deployment strategies that you need with cloud. If you can take that and apply it to infrastructure that lives on-prem or in a co-location facility in a data center and have more predictable pricing with an upfront investment, then that might be the way to do things if you can make an economic justification for it. But that's that's where the society problem comes in is that you've got all of these engineers whose background are AWS. What do you do with them if you're going to move on-prem? What do you do? And as it turns out, it might be the human factor that really keeps companies from going necessarily from clouds to on-prem because that is, that is what their expertise is in. Like in, in terms of career management, if you if your job title includes AWS in it and you don't work for AWS you're going to be in a little bit of a pickle if your company decides to repatriate their workloads to something that's not AWS. And understandably, you're going to kind of fight that internally if you can. And so it's one thing to be able to say on a resume, oh, I, I helped save my company a million dollars on um, migrating this this workload to XYZ. But that's not, it's not really by itself engineering. That's not necessarily building things. And I think people get into this industry because they, they want to build things. It's... Um, I mean, it's the adult commercial version of working with Legos. And just thinking of it from a finance perspective, I think can be kind of bleak for people. And if you wind up in an organization that is where you have engineering decisions that are made by financial stakeholders and not engineering stakeholders, you're going to have a lot of difficulty keeping your engineering stakeholders in the organization. And that is why I say that technology is fundamentally a societal thing. Because it it's going to be all of these sort of career management, all of these, you know, interpersonal things that really influence how technology is used, not the merit of the technology itself.
0: You bring up a really good point about the financial aspect and not engineers making engineering decisions because of the dollars and cents. And I go around and tell everybody you don't optimize your cloud environment for cost is the first thing. You always optimize for performance of your workloads, and then optimize for perform for the financial aspect because you're still spending money. It's just how do we account for it, right? We've gone from a CapEx or we've gone from an a CapEx where we're making capital investments in IT infrastructure to an opex where I'm a DevOps engineer handing a credit card to somebody and using it that way. But money's not cheap, right? For a long time, money was cheap because you could borrow money for nearly nothing, right? So there was little to no risk, and we see those interest rates jacking up. How do you see as we come out of COVID and during a time when we saw not only the hyperscalers but we also saw other companies making big investments by acquiring smaller companies with the tech they needed to keep them relevant right <clears throat> do you see that landscape changing at all as we go further into 2023 where companies are going to either slow down or pause their acquisitions or do you see that same cycle continuing because now some of them have this the this stacked up cash reserves and they're not they're not they're not entirely dependent on interest rates being low so that they can borrow VC money and do you see how that? Do you see that changing the game of some of these unicorn companies that we saw come up in the late uh, 2021 and 2022?
1: From an acquire perspective, I think what you're going to see is a kind of a wait and see attitude. Like it, it, right now, the economy is just kind of meandering along. Like things aren't great, and outside of tech, things are pretty okay for the most part.
0: Like there's a lot of um, there's a lot of reductions in force in tech. I've had this theory that the companies laying. 8 to 10, 12% of their workforce off are doing it to keep up with their competitors and to keep up with Wall Street expectations versus the companies that are laying off 70, 80 and even closing their doors, right? And that seems to be indicative of more financial problems when you look at it. It looks like the, the banks that we've seen go under because, again, in my theory, they've been over leveraged on crypto. But what kind of impact does that have on how the the cloud spending is going? And is it going to slow down? It, it, have we gotten through the worst of it, or is it, or, or sh- should we continue to see more of that in 2023?
1: Okay, um, so with the companies doing the you know small single digit amounts of layoffs, it's its own little meme. Like everyone's doing it because everyone else is doing it, and you can give the appearance of maintaining the same amount of agility uh, without that staff, and it. It looks okay. It makes Wall Street happy. A lot of those people, frankly, are going to organizations where they're you know, contractors doing the thing that they did before. In some cases, it is a smokescreen. When you have companies doing 70 80% layoffs or not paying their bills for cloud or not paying their bills for offices or you know who exactly I'm mm-hmm. talking about, but I'm not going to say it. That's more indicative of a management problem And the one example that I'm thinking of is kind of an aberration. I wouldn't say that that is (laughs) going to be widely indicative of of how the market's
0: going to go. You bring up a good point about bad management versus the the Wall Street expectations when it comes to layoffs, right? Because for a long time, since I started in the cloud, a lot of these companies have hired talent to keep their competitors from having that talent. So you hire them, you put them in... Not meaningless, but you, you put them in a role, you pay them good, and you give them the the, the golden handcuffs. Those days are over because, you, like you said, we're seeing people switch the contractors doing the same job that they were doing at the same company they were doing it for. It just changes their status. But I think the bad management aspect, as we come out of COVID, I think the employee employees got to reset a bunch when it comes to that because we got to we the employees got to dictate how we work. Right. We, we got a lot more flexibility and we showed that we could keep the same level of work. But what level of cloud automation has enabled this and how much of these layoffs are in response to the levels of increasing automation that we're able to see hey, or able to utilize, not see, able to utilize? So certainly if your role was
1: maintaining servers on prem and your organization has moved to the cloud, it's going to be difficult to keep a job in that instance. You know, I would hope organizationally that there's some means for upskilling or a nice severance package under those circumstances. But that's not always the case, sadly. But there is definitely this really interesting phenomenon going on of there's a lot of, you know, large tech companies that were selling a lot of things to enable hybrid or remote work that had instituted, because everyone instituted remote work during COVID. And now they're trying to claw that back. Now they're saying, you know, come back to the office when they're out there selling tools for remote work. And that that's an interesting contradiction to try to sell. And so I do kind of wonder, you know, did they believe the product work? Do they believe in the, the product that they're selling that they can, you know, actually make remote work work? Or is this a case of maybe they didn't? Or is it a case of management feels more comfortable seeing people to manage them. And if you need to see people to manage them, is your management practice effective?
0: That's a great point and brings me to my next question, sort of. But my next question is really about the acquisition landscape because that's where we started. Yeah, We've seen a lot of legacy companies that have gone, and legacy being the forerunners of the tech industry, Microsoft's, Apple's, others acquire lar- or lots of little startups that work in the cloud-native space. Is that trend going to continue, even though they're, these same companies are laying people off? are they? Are, do you see the acquisition cycle still continuing? And what is the impact of that on the future of the cloud landscape as AWS acquires more companies, right? We've seen AWS acquire a, a silicon chip maker, right? And we're going to talk about the transition from Intel to ARM and, or x86 to ARM in a later question but what impact do those acquisitions have in the in the wake of being able to get cash access to cash cheaply or have reserves and is it them trying to stay relevant and what do you see what what trends do you see so uh, that's another wide-ranging
1: question without identifying any one specific acquirer it's of course going to be a wait and see like The economy is just kind of hobbling along at the moment. But if you wind up in a situation where there's a lot of startups that are running out of ramp and they need cash quickly, it becomes a buyer's market. You can buy a whole bunch of companies pretty quickly um, on rather favorable terms for the acquirer and get a decent amount of talent and a decent amount of product in the process. And you know, if you do that in a situation where the economy isn't great, you're probably going to have... The talent from those companies, and sometimes these are just straight aqua hires. You'll have the, the talent from those um, acquired companies stay with you because trying to job hunt in a terrible market is a bad time. On the other hand, there's there's an aspect of this which I think security companies are always kind of a durable a durable good in terms of acquisitions. There's always some new threat that needs to be addressed, and there's always some new security company that's out there trying to address it. I think that's what we're seeing now with especially serverless security. That's one of those really big markets where the native tools that are provided by the hyperscalers aren't all-encompassing and they need a native solution. And the quickest way to square that circle is acquisition. It is, I mean, I I definitely don't envy um, anyone who is in the situation of needing to make payroll right now at a startup. It is, it is a tough market. And, you know, I think there's a little bit of reprieve with not getting a rake height uh, right now. There's probably more on the way.
0: But, you know, for now, we're, we're just kind of hobbling along. Have those rate heights changed the ramp length or um, velocity for those startups, right? Has, 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 has the economy contributed to that? Or is that just VCs getting more... And the angel funds and the investors in these early startups, is it just them changing their positions and saying, this is what we want to focus on, right? How much of it is the economy versus what VCs are just trying to do business-wise to make their return on their investment? Everyone's a little more antsy. And of course, there's going to be a lot more
1: focus on, okay, well, what is your burn rate than there was when cash was cheap? In terms of like real strategic pivots, I haven't seen a huge amount of this sort of thing. Like, there's there's things you can poke at. But what I look at, um, there's a lot of deep tech stuff that's still getting funded. And getting startup funding for deep tech is challenging. You need very sophisticated investors to do it who are very knowledgeable about the thing that they're investing in. And they have to be comfortable with the idea of not really getting a return for a lot longer event horizon than you would have for investing in a SaaS startup. I mean to to give you an example like I um I came to Analyst Land as a journalist and as a journalist I was focusing uh for a little bit one of my beats was quantum computing and that's one of those themes that I've kept in Analyst Land so I've I've been watching the quantum computing market for about 7 8 years which is way longer than someone outside like someone who's not a scientist has really been looking at quantum computing and deals are still being made even in this economy so deep tech is fine and if deep tech, deep tech is the canary in the coal mine. Like if they're having challenges, then the market is
0: really bad. But if they're still able to pull it off, then we're going to get through this. Let's break that down a little more because you bring up quantum computing and deep tech. What do you mean by deep tech? Let's start with that first and then I have a follow up.
1: Anything that is, if you have, you know, scientists who are um, taking their grad thesis and turning Mm -hmm. it into a business, that's deep tech. That's That's the shortest explanation.
0: And that's a that's a great explanation, one that is really easy to compound on. So when you talk about quantum computing, and how does quantum computing affect the cloud, and what should we look for there? What are like a, just a couple quick things that we can look for there about how quantum computing is influencing cloud computing.
1: Quantum computing is kind of perfect for cloud platforms because you're you're very likely not going to have a sustained workload that's going to drive a quantum computer 24 seven. And even if you just want to say, okay, this is just basic time sharing, that's still really useful. And if you try to do a deployment of a quantum computer on-prem, by the time you've got it set up, by the time you've got it powered on, characterized, it's probably already out of date. So it's kind of the perfect type of thing for a cloud cloud environment because you can have um I mean I, I don't want to um to reuse the word, but it, it you have time sharing and if you're just dipping your toes into the pool for, you know, how do we use quantum in for an existing business problem? Um, you're not going to make the multi-million dollar investment to deploy one of these things on-prem. Like you might have a couple of engineers experimenting with this, maybe full-time if you're really into it. But that's also really good for the quantum industry is, you know, lowering the barriers, lowering the the cost to really get into this, to really start experimenting With quantum today and quantum computers are really early so let me put it this way quantum computing is going to be really useful for a lot of let's say chemical sort of material science sort of things things where you have algorithms that you know today if you tried to run them on a classical computer would take thousands of years to finish in theory a quantum computer would be able to finish that faster and the reason for that is that they just work differently it's it's a different type of computer for a different type of math. I mean, when when you think about um, your average CPU, right—the the thing that's in your laptop, in my laptop, in your smartphone—fundamentally, it's an adding machine. When when you debug a program, it's the same instructions over and over: add, subtract, load, store, branch, compare. It's arithmetic. And when you when you you know got into the '90s, you needed 3D acceleration because that became the trendy thing to do. And that, as it turns out, is geometry. And so it became really trendy to build these ships for geometry. But still math. Yeah. Still basic add, and, add subtract, multiply, divide. But it also had parallelism. Mm-hmm. And that, as it turns out, was pretty handy for doing geometry. And when you get into things like AI, it's matrix multiplication. And so there's a lot of uh, a lot of companies out there who are trying to build AI accelerators that are just really good at matrix multiplication. And so quantum computing is kind of the fourth pillar of that. It's just a different device that does a different type of math really quickly. And the thing is, is you know, I, I say that, that's a massive generalization. There's a dozen or more, depending on how you really want to define these, ways to build a quantum computer. And this is where it gets back into the social aspect because the people building, let's say, superconducting quantum computers tend to be, you know, the, the brand's familiar to millions. They've got a lot of money to pour into this. Whereas if you are doing things like electron on helium, there's, you know, fewer than a dozen probably experts that really understand this technology and they're not maybe the loudest people out there. But I really suspect that there's going to be something other than superconducting or ion trap, which are the things that get the most attention at the moment. Um, but I think that one of these alternative qubit architectures where the founders are, you know, scientists who are new to navigating business. One of these efforts are probably going to bear very substantial fruit at some point. I've gotten way off track. This is not what we were supposed to talk no, about. I on saw this it. and, no, it's not. No,
0: Ryan's going to be very <laughs> mad. But um, I think that it, it, it it's really what a makes this podcast fun because I get to talk to cool people about cool stuff that I wasn't really planning on in the first place. I've never talked to anybody about quantum computing outside of the theory of of it, right? And sitting on a holodeck and the idea of being up in outer space flying the USS Enterprise. So it's really fun. So yes, we have gotten off track. When you look at the state of cloud computing right now, right? We see the three hyperscale. We, we know the big three hyperscalers. We know who the competitors are. What do you see on the horizon in 2023 that we should be looking out for and what should we be wary of when it comes to cloud computing, just based on your research? So, of course, everyone is freaking out about
1: generative AI right now. And what you need to do that is GPUs. And everyone needs, right now, NVIDIA GPUs to do that because that's where the software is. Everyone's using CUDA, so that makes the demand NVIDIA GPUs. And this is going to be another one of those things where kind of like how we've seen... And peer uh, come in with their own arm chips, or like you said earlier, Amazon bought Anapurna Labs to build Graviton, which is at the end of the day an arm chip for the cloud. So I I think we're going to see a lot more focus on custom silicon for cloud computing in the form of you know an alternative to GPUs for AI, and some of that already exists. Like Amazon has Trainium, they have Inferentia which, as the name implies, are for model training and model inference. Google has their tensor processor units, and they, they're they on their fourth generation of that. They might have the fifth behind doors, and it seems that Microsoft is also wanting to get into this. There's endless news reports about this. So that might be where the focus is, but you can't just focus on the hardware of it. You need to breach that gap in software. And right now, the experience of trying to do AI with something that isn't CUDA is not the most pleasant experience for developers. And so really, really making it possible to, as seamlessly as possible, use these alternative um, accelerators for AI without putting a lot of burden on developers for porting code to a a different environment. That's going to be where a lot of that focus is and there's of course interesting things
0: happening outside of ai but that's where all of the buzz is right now does cuda being proprietary hurt that development effort right like the fact that everybody uses cuda and relies on the nvidia tech does the fact that cuda is a proprietary license hurt that or and do you see open source alternatives coming or do you see it just kind of continuing on with nvidia being the industry leader and again sucking up all the bandwidth for those kind of or and and then how does a company like Microsoft who has traditionally failed at all except for Xbox when it comes to hardware start suddenly getting into this space you're an industry analyst i'm i'm um, i'm looking I, for your insights here <laughs> i am i am not a gaming analyst i'm
1: not a, a, a pc analyst so we're not going to we're not going to talk about Xbox or Surface i have private opinions about that that you can get um, from me after a couple of beers so see I mean, it's great for NVIDIA that everyone is using CUDA. The challenge is, is, there are open source solutions out there. Some of them are are used in parallel with CUDA. Like a lot of this is done on TensorFlow. TensorFlow was developed by Google. And you know, to the extent that companies are going to invest in open source and then, sorry, invest in software and then release that as open source, is where that meter is going to change, because just expecting. Um, you're not going to get a coordinated group of grad students build the frontier of open source for AI because that's not what they do. They're They're trying to develop AI, not the tools to make it. And that is a very different thing. Like you can get research funding for one thing and very likely not the other. So it's going to come down to corporate sponsorship. And where do you get that corporate sponsorship? What we've seen for, and again, drawing the parallel to ARM, a lot of the work to take existing open source software that, you know, was maybe only compiled for x eighty six sixty four, maybe wasn't some, um, maybe there were some hard dependencies, maybe there weren't, but to take that and port it to ARM, a lot of that work has been undertaken by Amazon because they want people to use Graviton CPUs. And then you have an ecosystem effect that comes up around that because now that you've got this, it really does open the door for other companies to do ARM in the cloud or ARM on-prem if you want to. like, You can buy an HPE ProLiant Gen 13 with an Ampere CPU and they will gladly sell one to you. You can get ARM on-prem in, in data centers. And that is why this works as a thing in 2023 when it didn't 10 years ago when you had the HP HP HPE Moonshot system using the XGene arm cpus because there was no software support and so it comes down to software you need the software for this to work and it's going to save corporate investment in open source um, that you know ideally works across different systems um,
0: to really make open source in ai
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense or open source in anything
0: what about containers where do you see the future of containerization going kubernetes is Great, granted, the kind of the industry leader that we've all coalesced around in this industry, but w- what do you see happening with the scalers and containers and just containers, the containers as a technological found or uh, foundational technology taking us as, as 23 and 24 is now on the horizon because we're halfway through 2023? I have kind of diverging opinions on this.
1: The first is you know, 10, 15 years ago, VMs were the hot thing. And mm-hmm. commercially, practically everything is centered around VMware. Mm-hmm. Like, you can use alternatives, and they're okay, but the actual install base of them is not seemingly high. Yeah. It's also a little challenging to get really good numbers on what the install base of an open source package is. That said, I have a feeling that Kubernetes is going to wind up kind of the same way, where it's it just is. It's just there. It's not exciting. And I think there's a, a real benefit to making technology boring as well. Because if you make Kubernetes boring, you can focus on something else. If that's you know, if, if that's table stakes, then you can you can focus on, you know, actually building an app, not building the infrastructure to render app. At a at a micro level, I do really wonder what the long-term uh, let's say lifespan of Docker versus like Podman is. And this is, this is one of those things that I'm not convinced that people care about that much. But there have been, you know, Docker is trying to find where its market fit is. And that has been reflected in some changes in Docker Desktop. That's been reflected in some changes in the way that um, organizations, let's say, not necessarily commercial ones, maybe just individuals, um, publish things to Docker Hub. And those changes were not well communicated. And then they walked that back. But they walked it back in the way of no, you've misunderstood. That was never our intent, and no one believes that. And so Docker, as, as an organization, um, they face a they face a definite challenge
0: in trying to figure out where they play overall in this space. So that's a very good point. Do you think that containers are going to go the way of VMware and just become so ubiquitous that the traditional virtual machine platforms that we use? So let's let's call them out: VMware and Hyper V. Are going to have to get to the point where they're supporting containers in some way, or are they going to have to look at how they approach that, or will there will there always be a need for virtual machines, right? Which way is the industry going? Um, both at the
1: same time. Like there's there's already ways to to use VMs and containers together. You can have nested virtualization too, which is really a level of abstraction that only an engineer could love. So it I do you sincerely think that you'll wind up with both um i mean there's legacy technology never goes away i'm not gonna say
0: either of the two are legacy because at this point there's not but yeah but i mean vmware's the virtual machines have been around for yeah. 20 years and i remember what happened the first time i walked into my boss's office and said hey we, we need to buy a really big server so i can virtualize stuff and he looked at me like i was from the moon right and now Everybody uses VMware in some way or fashion. It doesn't matter if it's on your local machine, right? And I, and the same is for Kubernetes for people like me, right, where I'm running Kubernetes stuff on, like, laptop, right? I, I want to be able to microservice stuff. And so I guess my question is, do you see them existing in parallel or do you see them diverging and one overtaking the other? I think for the foreseeable future,
1: you will see them exist in parallel because there, there's there's no... Um... Welcome to ipv 6 There's no benefit to a rip and replace here. And, you know, some people will, will try to malign something by calling, uh, you know, product A or B a legacy technology or even worse, technical debt. And to the people who actually rely on this stuff, this is the tried and true thing. Why change something that works? And the thing is, is enterprise technology never goes away ever. There are still organizations that use OS two
0: in production. Oh yes! Oh yes! This never goes away. I mean, I was I was working I was working on AS four hundreds back in twenty ten, and the, before I got into the cloud, I was working for companies maintaining uh, OS or not OS two, but AS four hundred systems for their payroll, right? And I'd have to go in and give AS four hundred patches from a three and a half inch floppy, right? You're right. Enterprise tech especially never dies, right? There's a reason that there's still Windows 2008 servers out there just chunking away, running their workloads. We're going to see stuff manage in parallel. What about processors? Do you see the x86 platform that we're used to, right? And as companies like Apple come out with the M1, as AWS has come out with Gravitron, as we see more and more ARM stuff come on the horizon. Do you think one's going to overtake the other, or do we see them existing in parallel again for the foreseeable future because of their different Oh, They'll, they'll
1: definitely be in parallel. And a lot of what that's going to come down to is finances. There's a lot of back-end things where the, the actual architecture of the CPU is not exposed to the user. And things like managed databases. Or, you know, maybe, maybe they'll go to the effort of disclosing this. Maybe you can have a managed database on arm versus x86 and get a savings for doing it one way or the other but there are things in the background where you wouldn't really know it just is what it is that's the surface and when you get to the scale of one of the hyperscalers at some point it becomes more cost effective to just build your own cpus rather than buy them from intel or amd and that's not for everything there's some things where you need leading edge performance That you might not be able to get on something that you're designing yourself. But that's not going to be every
0: workload. And well, and we saw that with the servers too, right? We saw that with how Facebook, who is notorious for how they stood up their data centers on custom hardware, almost custom hardware, but being they figured out they bought the parts that they needed and made it work the way they wanted. So I guess that's my next question is how much of this is based on AWS's specific performance requirements? versus what the reality is of what I carry in my pocket and how much of it is I I just don't want to pay Intel or AMD to use their chips and it's cheaper for me to invest in it over the long run and spend a couple hundred billion dollars investing in my own chip and outsourcing a fab. How much of that is competitive advantage and not wanting to lock yourselves into what could be a competitor versus the real technology under the stack? I'm not sure that that's even the question that should be asked. And the reason for that is that
1: when you... And this gets into the GPU problem again, because all of this stuff is getting more and more power hungry. And we're a little past a point where you can't really fill an entire rack full of servers because the power requirements are too high or the cooling requirements are too high. And so if there's a way to have a lower power CPU that's good enough for what you need it to do in terms of density, which is going to be a concern for anyone running a data center, If you're a cloud user, you don't really care what the density is unless you're, you know, looking at ESG things and then that's a separate conversation entirely. But if you're trying to manage density, if you've got a a certain, you know, square footage that you have to compact, um, auto-regular cadence to support an increasing number of users and you absolutely want that number of users to increase, you're going to need denser compute that doesn't use as much power. And the idea... uh, and general practice over the last decade of, okay, we'll just turn up the TDP, we'll, we'll be a little more power hungry, we'll run a little hotter, but we'll get more performance for it. Uh, you can't do that infinitely. And so it, it really is a power thing as much as it is anything else. To add to that, that doesn't mean that ARM is gonna be the only game in town for this. On one hand, there's risk five, and you could see risk five in data centers in five or ten years, it's going to take a little more time for that to really mature. On the other hand, Intel's working on... In the last couple of years, um, Intel CPUs have efficiency cores and performance cores. And right now, the Xeons you can get all use performance cores. But seemingly, in response to the you know amount of uh, competition that, that they're getting from ARM-powered things, they're working on Xeons that have only efficiency cores. And we'll see those come to market in the next year or so. And that is gonna be another solution to this compute problem, to this power problem that is fundamentally a data center management thing. And so it's a little transparent, like I said, to cloud users. But we're in a we're in a space now where there are more options. And from the aspect of a, a cloud user, is more options ever really an issue? And, and that itself becomes its own little problem where, you know, you've got millions of SKUs that you have to worry about. How do you select what you need? And then you need software to deal with
0: that. Yep. No, that's a very good point. So I'm going to ask you one more question, then I'll get into my get to know your questions that I like to do to get to know the people behind the cloud. ESG, you brought it up and you said, that's a whole different question. So now I'm going to ask you about ESG. Because sustainability is a big part of cloud initiatives, right? Mm-hmm. Companies have these stated goals. What do you think? Do you think they're doing any good? First, do you see anything on the horizon that the CIO or the CTO or company people that are tasked with adhering to these goals um, should look out for? And B, is it working?
1: So yes, it matters. Um the thing about all of this is it looks increasingly, and Europe is a little more on the forefront of this, that we're going to enter a regulatory situation where ESG is the new Sarbanes-Oxley, and that requires a lot of, from an accounting standpoint, from a, I, I don't know that I want to burden uh, the FinOps people with this, but this is probably going to wind up being a, a you know financial stakeholder sort, sort of problem, because it's going to be the accountants that have to deal with the accounting of your ESG. Um, it's going to be one of those things where there's a lot of reporting that comes out that you're going to have to do on an annual or quarterly basis, and so of course the time to think about it is now. And as as a small plug, CCS Insight has a a little survey for sustainability, and it's not that little of a survey; it's a decently large survey, and you can get a, a, a you know free download of the, um, the top line sort of results from it. But it is one of those things that absolutely cloud buyers and the people responsible for cloud platforms have to worry about and the reporting tools for, you know, what is the, the environmental impact of using a, a VM in the cloud? How is that exposed to the cloud buyer? Not particularly well right now. And so those tools have to massively improve. And what I, in a perfect world, what I would love to see is all of the carbon emission, all of the power intensity, all of the power usage, um, and a, a host of other aspects. I want to see that delivered as an API with, you know, hourly or better granularity. And then that can be taken by spot or any other sort of cloud cost management company and exposed to users in the same way that, you know, cloud buyers are looking to reduce their cloud spend. And very soon cloud users are going to be looking to reduce their environmental impact. And if those can be presented side by side, that is where a lot of the change is going to be made possible. Because there's, there's things that the cloud vendors can do. Like the hyperscalers, you know, have their pledges for reducing power usage, increasing use of renewable energy, reducing water consumption. But when it comes down to it, when you have a regulatory environment that requires um, scope three reporting, this is going to have to be exposed to the cloud buyers to the finance stakeholders and
0: that tooling is not nearly as mature as it needs to be. That's a very good point. And Thank you. And trying to figure out how to make it scale so that you're getting accurate information instead of just generic information, right? Because we all know that that data has to be actionable. For it to be actionable, it has to be relevant. and has to be correct, right? So yeah. you need to be able to give me my usage region by region, zone by zone, based on what data center I'm landing at. So that's a very good... That's a that's a really good point as to some of the complexities around ESG. Now, before we wrap up, one of the things I like to do is I like to get to know the people behind the cloud. I think that cloud engineers and cloud, people who work as meteorologists, as you said earlier in our call, which is great, get forgotten in the in the buzz and the hype of things like generative AI and cloud security. And we forget who actually runs the cloud. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions. We can just wrap back and forth. It won't take very long. First of all, You've been working with computers a long time. What is your favorite tech thing to play with in your own time when you're just hacking around?
1: Um. Well, I have a <laughs> I have a little home server that runs Portainer, and I, I've a- got a few Docker containers that uh, that are on there, and I spend a little too much time messing with that. Um. I also so like two years ago, right when supply chains were insane and GPUs were incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. No one wanted to build a gaming PC because it was terribly expensive to do, yeah. and I managed to find a new old stock, um, a new old stock laptop from around 2005. So very like Vista era hardware, mm-hmm. completely bare bones. So I I got you know a CPU, I got some RAM, I got an SSD, um, and the idea was to have basically the the newest possible thing that can plausibly run. XP to run old video games. Oh nice. So that was that was a fun little experiment that I I spent a little too much time and a little too much money on. But um it
0: it's a neat little thing to have a, a brand new vintage laptop. No, that's awesome. Um what do you like to do when you're di- when you disconnect, right? You shut your computer down, what do you what do you find yourself doing in your spare time? Um so being a transplant to Seattle
1: and Washington state in general, it's really nice to go outside and see there's geological diversity here in a way that I didn't get growing up in Kansas. Like Kansas is very flat. Mm-hmm. All the trees are in a line and there's so much natural beauty in Washington State. It's it's nice to just go outside and see it. Have you been up to Hurricane
0: Ridge yet? Uh, I have not. You got to go. go okay. You got to go check it out. That's one of my, we were talking about before we started the call, how I grew up up there and Hurricane Ridge and then the bunkers at Fort Warden. Are really fun to go through if you ever want to go through the world war ii bunkers you can go through and sit on the gun turrets. it's really cool so if you ever get a chance go over the sound and take the uh take the ferry go over the hood canal bridge and find yourself in port townsend and uh, port angeles and you can go up hurricane ridge you'll have a lot of fun i really appreciate you taking time out of your day and uh, chatting with us for a little bit and giving us your insights um thanks for joining us on cloud control thank you for having me It's it's been a real blast i appreciate it we'll talk soon You've been listening to Cloud Control with our guest on this episode, James Sanders, Principal Cloud Analyst for CCS Insights. You can find James on Twitter at JASNP, I'm sorry, at JAS underscore NP, or you can visit him on his website at JamesAltonSanders.com. This episode has been presented to you by Spot by NetApp. You can and just this is just a reminder that you can join us on disc, the NetApp Discord community by visiting discord.gg/netapp or simply just visit netappdiscord.com. I've been your host Sean Harris, DevRel lead at Spot by NetApp, and you can find me on Twitter at inktater or you can drop us an email at cloudcontrolpodcast at protonmail.com to give us your feedback, recommend guests, and just give us your thoughts on the episode that you just listened to. And until next time. We'll see you in the cloud.